Will you please pray with me? God, we thank you for the gifts of this day and for the gifts of your story and for the gifts of our stories. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever had a rock collection or perhaps tended to a rock garden? I went through my own phase in my late elementary through preteen years of collecting rocks. It was my great-grandfather's who inspired the collection. He was the collector of rocks, and at my grandmother's house, his rocks were filled with it, mostly geodes. Except for the fact that they're not covered in chocolate, these rocks are like nature's kinder surprise eggs. You don't know what you're going to get until you bust it open. I remember being so mesmerized by the amethyst crystals that were found inside. Behind my grandmother's house was a small storage shed where the collection was kept. Most of the rocks he would polish to make jewelry and bolo ties. And when we would visit, he would take my brother and me back there to show them off and teach us the names. Obsidian and Tiger Eye were my favorite. And when my family took vacations, we always camped, often staying at state and national parks. I'd keep an eye out and pick up an interesting-looking rock from a hike. Or sometimes, I'd look through the bins of rocks at souvenir and gift shops and I'd pick out a few stones to bring home to add to my collection. Each rock a reminder of the vacation and the place we had visited. The scripture that I chose today is about a rock collection ordained by God. As Elise read, we heard the story of God's people crossing the River Jordan this final crossing before entering the promised land. After centuries of oppression and enslavement in Egypt, and almost four decades of wandering in the desert, God's people had finally arrived at the land of freedom that had been promised to them several generations before. Reaching the Jordan River calls to mind a similar crossing made at the beginning of their 40-year journey, the crossing of the Red Sea. There, here at the end of their journey, once again, God's people cross over on dry land as the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant, the place that bears God's presence, to the edge of the river. And when they enter, the river stops dry, allowing them to pass through safely. And the story continues. Once everyone had finished crossing the Jordan, God tells Joshua to pick out 12 people, one from each of the tribes, and to collect 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan and to place them at Gilgal where they would camp for the night. So that years later, when their children and their children's children and their children's children's children would come across this unique rock collection, 
full of curiosity and wonder and imagination and ask their parents, what do these stones mean? They could tell them the story of crossing the Jordan, a story, a testimony of promise and of hope of God's presence. Today is the third Sunday in our series, Testify, in which our co-pastors, Ian and Clover, have invited us ministers on staff to share our stories of faith, our testimonies. Last Sunday, Clover shared her story, and in the upcoming Sundays, Adam and Ian and Sandy will be sharing theirs. Having been raised in the Southern Baptist Church with a strong tradition of sharing testimony, I grew up listening to these stories, to conversion stories, to stories of salvation, often shared as miraculous moments or profound awakenings, dramatic one-time experiences. And while I don't doubt these experiences, I believe that God reveals God's self in extraordinary ways. These have not been part of my faith journey. I have never experienced any miraculous river crossings like the Hebrew people. Nor have I had a conversion experience like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Jesus hasn't appeared to me on a piece of toast. I wasn't saved by the terrible thunderstorm like Martin Luther. And my heart has never felt strangely warmed in the way that John Wesley shares his story. In fact, I find it difficult to articulate and to put words of my personal experiences of God's presence. It's more of an ineffable sense or a feeling. But like the Hebrews, I do have touchstones, these moments that I can bear witness to God's presence in my life. I've had awakenings and what I would call ongoing conversions. There isn't a time in my life when I can't remember the church being a part of it. My parents married young, and my dad enlisted in the army. Shortly after he finished boot camp, he was stationed in Berlin, Germany, where I was born. Most of my childhood was spent overseas. We would spend three years abroad and then return to the States for three years. And this pattern of moving back and forth continued until my dad's retirement after my freshman year of college. So young and newlywed, a long way from home and in a foreign land, my parents found community and belonging at a Southern Baptist church, which was led by American missionaries. And this tradition stuck with us throughout our many moves. Growing up in a military family brought with it challenges of constantly moving around and being unsure of where our next destination would be. The church became a place of consistency. We were devoted to the church. Like Clover, I got perfect Sunday school attendance. I also filled up the Bible verse memory charts. I learned the books of the Bible and I would often win the Bible speed drills. 
not only did we go to church on Sunday mornings, we went back again in the evenings. And we returned on Wednesday nights for potlucks and Bible studies. In between, we would read the Bible and had family devotions together at the dinner table. Throughout each of our many moves, I came to trust that I too would find comfort and community and belonging at church. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This song, this assurance and acceptance was my first touchstone. And with childlike wonder, I believed it and I knew it to be true. As part of the Southern Baptist Church, as you might imagine, baptisms were a central part of our worship. I was captivated by them, captivated by the immersion where each time someone would come forward to participate in the ritual, I could sense that something transformative was happening in their lives. As I witnessed each baptism, there was a thrill as the person emerged from the waters marked as a child of God. They belonged to our community of faith. And I knew that I wanted to be a part of this community. And so I acted upon what I heard the preacher say Sunday after Sunday, that we needed to accept Jesus into our hearts. So before I could even swim at four or five, I can remember being in the kitchen with my mom. My baby brother was sitting in his high chair and I told my mom that I wanted to pray for Jesus to be in my heart. If I had remembered, I would have brought with me a cross necklace that was given to me on that day that I was baptized. This too, this piece of jewelry, is a memory. It's a touchstone. It would be several years before I was allowed to be baptized. My parents wanted to ensure that I understood what the sacrament meant and perhaps that I could swim. Of course, I couldn't articulate the doctrine of baptism. That was beyond me. But I was well aware that in baptism, I was acknowledging that God was with me, that I was claimed as a child of God. I was eager to share that with others, that I knew that Jesus loved me and that Jesus loved them too. My entrance into seeking a life, a faith-filled life, wasn't a moment of radical clarity. In many ways, I was simply born into the Protestant faith. I've often imagined that if I was born in Ireland or Mexico, I would be a pious Catholic. Or in Palestine or Oman, I would be a devout Muslim. Or Nepal or India, I might be a practicing Buddhist or perhaps a Hindu. I do believe that in that moment, praying in the kitchen with my mom and at the celebration of my baptism, that it was part of an ongoing conversion experience, these gradual moments of awareness and response to God's love. In eighth grade, my family moved here to Denver, Colorado. And for the first time, we weren't living overseas or in the American South. Finding a Southern Baptist church proved difficult, or at least one that was Southern enough or Baptist enough I'm not sure, but either way, 
we settled at a nearby church close to home without a denominational affiliation in its name. This was new to us. We liked the preaching. The community was welcoming. They loved Jesus. And I quickly became involved in a youth group. It was after we felt connected that I began to notice the differences. First, that women were allowed in leadership positions as elders and deacons. And then we realized that the church baptized infants. The church was affiliated with the Dutch Reformed Church in America, similar in history and theology to our own denomination, the PCUSA. But when the settlers arrived on the boats, they established Dutch-speaking churches. I had to reconcile what I felt like were fundamental differences from my Southern Baptist upbringing and the Jesus-loving people who I had encountered and come to love. How could we both love Jesus but practice faith differently? When I would ask questions, my youth pastor, a seminary student at the time, would copy articles and chapters from books that he was reading for his classes, and he would let me come to my own conclusions. The seed for theological studies was planted, and with far more questions than answers, I decided to go to a school where I could major in biblical studies and minor in youth ministry and continue to explore these questions. I was sent along with a book on youth ministry and the touchstone that God is present in the questions and in the calls. So while I haven't had these earthquake moments of sensing God's presence or hearing God's voice calling out in the night, I have had moments of sensing the Spirit's movement. These are those liminal moments when heaven and earth feel a little closer. I've experienced this at each moment of call of a new job or of going to seminary. Throughout my undergraduate studies, I did explore these questions and I felt called into ministry and I began to look for youth ministry positions. I had very little experience and I felt like my choices would either be an internship with little to no pay or to jump in the deep end and just hope for the best. Neither was turning up in my search, and the time was coming where I either needed a job or I would likely need to move back home. And in that moment, a job description appeared in an unlikely place, advertising a full-time youth director position that would also be supervised like an internship, including full pay and benefits in Cleveland, Ohio. It seemed too good to be true, but I had this overwhelming sense that God had answered my prayer. Not only had God answered my prayer, but God also revealed a great sense of humor. This church in Cleveland, Ohio, this liberal, Jesus-loving, progressive PCUSA congregation, had somehow extended an invitation to me a conservative, Jesus-loving evangelical to come and to lead their youth ministry. On the first Sunday when I worshipped with them, the pastor, my new boss, 
had, reached, had preached a radical to me sermon about the kingdom of heaven being here on earth. That following Jesus is to live in such a way that seeks justice and equality, that loves the vulnerable, that pursues reconciliation and healing. I had lunch to me with the volunteer, I had lunch that Sunday with the volunteer youth leaders after worship, and all they could do was rave about the sermon. I, however, had no idea what to think. Actually, what I thought was, what the heck have I just done, and what have I gotten myself into? For two years, that church challenged me, and for two years, that church loved me unconditionally. Their way of practicing faith was different than the way that I had grown up, living my own faith. They lived out in ways that were transformational. They shared the good news that we are beloved children of God, not just from the pulpit, but in the ways that they lived. They sought to fully and completely live in the messiness of the world. They were examples of what it means to claim our baptism and live radically transformed lives. As I wrestled with the way I was experiencing God's love evident in this community, they loved me back, and they taught me grace, and they entrusted me with their youth. The church in Cleveland shared with me the grace of God and that the Spirit and the ways that the Spirit moves. They taught me more about the depth of God's love. And if ever there was a time of conversion, this was a time of conversion, an awakening to a deeper way of understanding God's love and grace. This understanding of ongoing conversion captures the lifelong struggle we face in moving towards increasing holiness even while we fail to love God fully. Conversion in this way is this accrual of events and experiences that show the gradual placement of trust and reliance in a different grounding, a different imagination of the world. Cleveland is a touchstone of God's grace. It's there that I felt my call as a woman into ordained ministry, and it's there that I learned that not only is God gracious, God's grace is abundant, and God's grace abounds. There are more touchstones that I could share of going to seminary and of participating in work trips, of being on retreats, of moments in nature, of moving here to Montview. Last week, Clover encouraged us to write our testimonies and our stories of faith. And this week, I'll add to it and encourage you to consider your touchstones the mementos and the stories and the moment that remind you of God's presence and reveal a truth of God's love in your life. To share them, perhaps with your children or your children's children or a friend or a parent or a partner or even your dog and trust that God's grace abounds. Amen.